I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 102 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and a celebration of the 2023 PGA Championship at Oak Hill Country Club. The first course of Oak Hill was built in Rochester, New York in 1901, and only lasted 20 years before the University of Rochester expanded its borders and took over the land. However, that loss represented a tremendous opportunity for its membership, and with it, the ability to hire one of the greatest golf course architects of all time, Donald Ross, who was hired to design a new 36-hole golf club over this remarkable land shaped by glaciers 10,000 years ago. In Ross's own words, This land was one of remarkable beauty, and he told the membership that he would design one of the finest golf courses in the United States. In 1924, 54 teams, consisting of 165 laborers, six tractors, and two steam shovels, moved 200,000 cubic yards of earth, installed 16 miles of drainage tile, five miles of cast iron piping, built 14 bridges, and planted 26,000 pounds of grass seed. Ross's iconic design would live relatively untouched for roughly 30 years before the first renovation by Robert Trent Jones Sr. in 1955 and was further renovated by George and Tom Fazio 20 years later. Today, along with Andrew Green, we will explore how Ross's original East Course has changed over the years, how Andrew Green approached the restoration process, and we will sprinkle in a little bit of history on every hole. Let's dive into the restoration of Oak Hill, the front nine. Today on Talking Golf History, we're joined by the renowned golf course architect, Andrew Green, and together we will explore how Donald Ross's original East Course design at Oak Hill changed over time, and how Green and his team approached the restoration process. Andrew, thank you for joining us on Talking Golf History. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It, uh, it's been an interesting process at Oak Hill from the day it was put on the ground by Ross uh, to what the players will see in a few weeks. And, and I mean, you have to still be involved. We have the PGA Championship, I mean, basically around the corner. Is there anything there you you have to do still or are you done and you're just kind of celebrating or worried? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We, we did a few little touch-ups uh, last year, but really it's it's kind of letting the golf course wake itself up with the spring weather and and putting on the show. And then after the, the event, we actually have some things we're considering as part of the cleanup work. So let me ask you, I mean, so I, I think this is the first time I've interviewed an architect where we have an upcoming 
uh, you know, major championship being played on the course that they've restored. I like, how nervous are you? <laughs> right. Cause the yeah. last major, I mean, the course is completely different or will look and play different going back to Ross's original designs. So you're going to have, I'm sure different comments you're going to get from the players. And I don't know if there's an expectation from the club of, you know, we need to defend par. Thank God it's not a U.S. Open. So maybe not. So like, or what worries do you have in the back of your head? If you can share them. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Are you trying to, you know, have me have less sleep than I already do? (laughs) Uh, No, um, I'm excited. I think it's as much excitement as anything. Um, There's such great people in Rochester and at Oak Hill and, there's such a great legacy of hosting these events. And I, you know, my, my only goal is that it's a great week and that, uh, you know, it's an exciting championship. I'm not worried about score. I'm not worried about much of anything. I think comments from the players, certainly I'm interested to see what their feedback will be. We've had some players out, so I, I kind of know where uh, their head is. It's, you know, it kind of fits still in a bit of a traditional Northeast major championship kind of site, you know, with the Parkland style golf course and, and the elements that it, that make it what it is. Uh, you know, there's some bunkers that are going to be really demanding. I'd say the bunkering is as bold and, you know, potentially troubling for players as any they'll face in the United States. I, I'd akin them, some of them, especially more to what they would face in, uh, you know, over over the pond in the Open Championship. So I think that's really the main thing. Uh, otherwise, they're just a bunch of whole locations no one's ever seen before in major championship play. Yeah. That they'll Crazy, be faced with. Right? And yeah, it, it, it'll be good. Yeah, that's very cool. So before we start on like Oak Hill, for those who don't know much about you, like how did you get into golf course architecture? What was your path? I, I love hearing these stories from architects. Yeah. Um, I was a junior in high school and I loved the game of golf. I wasn't the best player by any means, but I just absolutely loved everything about the game of golf. I love the challenge. I love the camaraderie. I love the ability actually to, to go out and challenge the, the, the course and par, you know, yourself, you know, just the one-on-one thing uh, that golf offers and you know, the people you get to meet and just being outside, you know, I loved all of those things. And then I had a, a deep passion for technology, emerging technology, computers. You know, I was kind of in that era uh, in the 80s into the early 90s where a lot of that technology was coming online. And all of a sudden, it just seemed to make a lot of sense to pursue this. And I was one of those kids that drew golf holes in the margins of their papers and things. And so as a junior in high school, I went and visited Virginia Tech and met with the landscape architecture department and the turf grass department, both of them. And we decided there was a way that if I wanted to do this, I could kind of go on a dual or double uh, kind of path and get two degrees from there. And I've never turned back. Uh, It hasn't been easy. No, I mean, for people at home that are doodling in the margins, like maybe, maybe capitalize on that. Like how hard is it to get to where you are right now? I mean, it's, it's a crapshoot in many regards. Is it not little luck? little skill, a lot of hard work, I imagine. Yeah, I think, you know, my mentality was always I was not going to get outworked. You know, I was never going to end up in a situation where I felt like I left something on the table. And that's that served me really well. Um, You know, certainly frustrations. It took me forever to get a Donald Ross project. 
because you have to have Donald Ross experience. Yeah, there's to work so many people out sports. there, right? I mean, it's just, it's, you know, flocking industry of people that have more experience than you when you're kicking it off, right? That's right. So, you know, if, if I was giving any advice to someone that wanted to pursue it, number one, you have to know it's not easy and, and you're going to get kicked down and there's going to be many days where you think you're never going anywhere and it's a waste of maybe effort, but that you just pursue your passion the best you can and things all happen for a reason. I truly believe that. And I try to approach every day that if it were all to end and I was never to work on another golf course that I just appreciate where I've, you know, come from where I am. And, and I try really hard, really, really hard to enjoy the journey. It, yeah. It's tough when you're burning it kind of at both ends and yeah. traveling. Over. I can only imagine. Uh, yeah. Anyways. So yeah. if you could name maybe two projects, you know, maybe the first one where you realized like this, you know, I can, I can make it like I've, you know, I'm not that I've made it, but I can make this work. And maybe the second project being is probably a terrible way to phrase it, but you know, you know, I've arrived, you know, like this is my career. I'm going to be successful at it. Uh, you know, my path is a good one. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm not sure maybe about the first question as far as, you know, thinking that when the moment was that I thought I was going to be okay. Uh, I think even when I went out on my own in 2014, there was some hesitation of would I really be able to make it stick? I actually named my company Green Golf and Turf Inc. to have the turf part to fall back on. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and then it, I remember very vividly, especially since we're talking Oak Hill, I remember very vividly the day in which I got the phone call that I'd received the commission uh, for that that work. And obviously that was very exciting and uh, a great deal of responsibility. But, uh, you know, another little point of advice or, or thought that I'm not sure I've ever heard is that in doing this business, especially as a young person in this business, there will be many, 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 many days where you get a phone call about a prospective job or the ability that you're going to be hired to do something and you'll get excited about it and then your heart will get broken. And it, it happened to me a lot. So it's uh, perseverance is key. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Me and my, uh, let's call it, I'm doing quotation marks, everyone, my real career. Uh, I'm a real estate developer and I, I tell all of our new real estate developers don't care too much. You know, like you can't fall in love with the project. You know, you just have to do everything you can to win it and do everything, put it all on the table and just accept the fact that you can only control the things that you can control. And if you put your best effort, in my opinion, that's a victory. And if it goes to somebody else, you know, more power to them and best of luck. Uh, but it is, it's a heartbreak business because there's a lot of golf course architects out there right? There's a lot of talent out there and it's hard to win. You're picking one person. So uh, yeah, I get it. Uh, you know, you brought up Oak Hill. Let's jump into it. So okay. the restoration must've been an amazing undertaking. Uh, was the original idea from the club to turn back the cl clock to Donald Ross's design? Yeah, I think that the intent was to make the golf course feel as much like the original Donald Ross vision as possible. 
with the realization that the golf course had evolved in tremendous ways over time. And that, you know, thinking about the, the legacy and the history of the club and all the amazing major champions that had walked down those fairways and succeeded, that we had to kind of temper a true restoration effort to respect some of that evolution and then also respect the realization that major championship golf in whatever the 2000s is way different than golf in 1920 whatever it's a different animal altogether yes so i think there was a lot there were a lot of heartfelt conversations with the club leadership about trying to make sure we take the right steps to respect the history of the club its founding vision what donald ross brought to the table but making sure we didn't lose sight of um, its ability to host future championships and all the golf that had been played there in the past it's from a design perspective it's a demanding set of parameters to try to it's a really delicate balance right like how do you restore a donald ross that was you know built before the wound ball and titanium drivers and 460 cc and how do you bring back the feel of donald ross on a course that has to be a thousand yards longer because of technology that i mean it's that's a lot of, you know, that's a tightrope walk, isn't it? it is. Oh, and for sure. And I think the thing that, that kept hitting me over the head that we tried to work with was trying to make the golf course more playable, more enjoyable for the membership, holding, you know, holding this major championship ideal still at a very high level. And then when I take a look at what Ross drew out in his own hand, the pencil drawings we had from his own hand, and he has a 60 or 70 yard wide fairway in the realization that that's probably not uh, a reality for, for where the golf course is today. Uh, and, and how do you find ways to make the golf course more playable, uh, but respect in some res- respect in some respect uh, the, the corridors and things that, that are there uh, that we had to work with. So what, what's your process? How do you go about that process of restoring Oak Hill? Like, for instance, how, what kind of research do you lean on when you take on a project like Oak Hill? Like, what, how, do you, you, how do you take that on? I mean, it's, a, it's overwhelming, I can imagine. Yeah, I think, well, there's a couple of things. First off, Oak Hill has a tremendous depository of information. Their, their archives are outstanding. Uh, for the longest time, they were held in kind of the top of the turret-looking part of the clubhouse, and you have to walk up this very steep staircase to get up there. Uh, I spent a great deal of time digging through everything, and I, I've, it's, I guess I've come to find out that the best place to look sometimes is the place you don't expect to find things. Ooh, because give us some examples usually, there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's the place where things haven't been uncovered. Most stuff that's been uncovered is on the wall in the clubhouse. You know, it's been reproduced or enlarged or whatever. And uh, so digging through notes, uh, board meeting notes, uh, you know, these little intricate things. Uh, there's such a great call uh, from members to provide information from their relatives over time. You know, I think that's one thing great historic clubs should always do. You know, every couple of years, make sure they're asking for any information that their members' families might have, because it, it starts to reveal layers of information. 
And so trying to connect dots from even written information, uh, that was a huge thing, kind of putting a timeline together of how the golf course was founded, the original design, how it was modified, what were the decisions being uh, discussed. And then I went to the USGA Golf House uh, and went through their archives. There we located a photo that the club had never seen before. It's the oldest picture we have of the East Course. Um, it was somehow hidden and just a whole bunch of stuff. It wasn't part of a I mean, major championship. Do, I mean, as a golf history guy, I, I mean, I adore those moments. You have to, too. I mean, do you get like the heartbeat going when, when you come upon a photo like that? Here it is. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I just... It's, you just uh, happen to have it there. I love it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, I have it hanging up behind me, but that's actually the one I got from the golf house. Uh, oh, when they, so cool. they reproduced it for us. So, um, yeah, it's, that was a huge, exciting moment to find that because it, it started to speak to, you know, how the original drawings were placed on the ground, the, you know, the pencil work that Ross had, what did that actually mean in practice? Yeah, because it doesn't necessarily mean he wrote it down or drew it on the, and it, and that's what was delivered, right? To Correct. have photographic evidence goes along, or aerials, of course. Absolutely. So, you know, those were two major layers of information. And then the, the volume of digital information that's now available, if you know where to look, um, everything from Library of Congress to... Uh, the USDA, um, different turf organizations, different publications, different, heck, there's sports uh, libraries. And I, I, you know, I find myself in the evening, especially, you know, hanging out, semi-hanging out, I guess, with my wife and, and uh, we're watching TV or what, whatever. I'm on my laptop. Oh, know, I do the same thing. Of- it annoys my wife to no end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's like, what are you doing right now? I'm like, I'm in LA 84's archives right now yeah, reading golf exactly. Illustrated. That's a good, one. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> reading one. golf Illustrated from 1950 like why wouldn't i be doing that sure so you know that that's really where the 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 list of documents came from and that's kind of the way i attack most historic projects yeah do you pick um, a year i mean you know I, I know there's some people do that they find like there's it depends on how much restoration renovation has been done over the years, but sometimes people pick, you know, I'm picking 1924 as the example, if there have been a lot of changes. Was Oak Hill one of those, or was it, and we know in like the like mid-1950s, uh, Robert Trent Jones uh, Sr. came to the course, but were there things yeah. that occurred prior to that that you had to dial the clock and pick a year on? I, I feel that there are moments when that is possible but i continue to think about the evolution of every golf course and the decisions that are made some decisions are made by a a chair chairperson right and their golf game you know they hit it right to left or left to right and so they start to plant trees or make adjustments so much truth right right there (laughs) right Uh, real quick i remember playing golf with a guy who was really after me about wanting to widen some things out and I play golf with him. And I bet he didn't hit it five yards offline all day. And I was like, huh, all right, I get it. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so there's that mentality, right? That, that, that single members can really direct the direction of a golf course. 
Then there's the realization that there are problems that are inherently found within an original intent that just come to light, right? There's something, some issue. And so that's where I really try to understand the complete evolution of a course so that as you go back, there may be things that you need to pay attention to that aren't on that first picture, but make sense today. Yeah. Does that? No, that does. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to restore a hole to what it was if what it was had severe drainage issues and became a swamp in the middle of the fairway. You can't dial back the clock to something that doesn't work. So I think if if you were to watch me give a presentation on a, a restoration effort or sympathetic restoration or whatever you want to call it, I think you'll find that every design decision I make is grounded in something that I can point to. And it might not it might not be an exact year, but it's in the life of the golf hole. And I, I just think it there's reasons things are done. You need to unpack those. And then for the most part, there is an intent and reason that makes sense. And that's usually the way I go. I love it. All right. Well, we're going to dive in. So we're going to dive into each hole, how it changed over time. By the way, folks, we're, this is no judgment. This is before the quote unquote current era of restoration. This is when you know holes were being changed because the USGA was dictating or club members. So you're going to hear a lot of changes that sound sacrilegious to perhaps whatever Donald Ross made of, of design, but you know, we're not going to do it with judgment. We're going to just talk about how the course evolved over time and how, you know, Andrew Green restored it. So let's start off with hole number one. Uh, starts off with uh, Ross uh, with a 440 yard par four under uh, Robert Trent Jones, 440. And I think I have you at 460 yards. Does that sound correct? Yes. Okay. So, all right. How did the hole change prior to your restoration? So, uh, Robert Trent Jones Sr. eliminated bunkers down the left and added his own. He narrowed the fairway by half and eliminated the mounding and hummocks throughout the hole. He reshaped the green and added bunkers. So where do you want to go with here, Andrew? How would you like to approach what you did, what you saw, and how you wanted to approach it? Sure. <clears throat> so a couple things. One, the little bit of distance that was added is really using a dual T with the 14th hole. Uh, which we'll get to, obviously, but it plays kind of 90 degrees to the first. So there's a place there that you can use kind of either tee and get a little more distance one way or the other. Uh, the golf hole was really suffering from a, a lot of overgrowth of trees down the left-hand side. There wasn't a great uh, sight line into the modern landing zone of even a, a hybrid golf shot. Uh, you really kind of had to work a ball right to left if you wanted to get get it down the golf hole at all. Um, and then there's a floodplain actually that, that comes out from, um, the green, maybe 140 yards or so. And so the original Ross bunkers were all in a much shorter position, which pretty much throughout, right. That the sure. bunkers are going to be yeah. placed. Well, everyone's gaining distance oh, over these hundred years. Exactly. So what we really looked to do was to take the cluster of three bunkers he had at kind of the second set on the left-hand side of the golf hole and shoved them as far down the golf hole as we could without them being in the floodplain. You know, my thing is I'm not going to build something the club can't maintain for the future. So we really became locked in with distance and position based on that landform. And then we placed some hummocks beyond the bunkers to help make a longer drive more thoughtful 
down the left-hand side and a few little broken things short of the bunkers just to kind of extend the, the way that hazard um, impacts your, your thought. And then we widened a little bit the short landing zone. Some of that was for everyday member play. Some of it was to allow the better player to think about laying back and not challenging the narrower portion. Um, and then there's a bump or two we, we worked on on the right-hand side. So really from the tee shot, we widened it a little bit as far as sight lines. And then we, uh, we, we put a set of bunkers down that left side that respect what Ross drew, but get it, got him in a uh, modern position. Let me ask you this, and I'll go into, so each hole, I'll tell a little bit of history of the hole or history of the course that comes with it. So I'll, I'll jump into that in a quick second. But I think this question will go to at least the architectural buffs that are listening. How difficult is it when you're restoring a historic course like this that also is, it's known for hosting uh, major championships? How hard is it to balance where the tee boxes are and where the hazards are so it challenges you know, the elite golfer, but also um, inspire strategy for, you know, the duffer or the average player. Yeah, it's a very difficult balance. Um, You know, we're trying not to build the golf course for one week every so many years. Right. Right. But in the, in the case of Oak Hill, there's a few things where number one, there's two courses for the members. The members really love playing the West. Um, it's it's probably a, it's definitely more forgiving wider a lot of those things um <clears throat> but we really tried to work on mostly the ground game allowing the approaches to be wider a little more forgiving to run the ball in things that would help the everyday player that the better player probably isn't even taking advantage of unless they hit a, you know a poor drive they're in the rough or something where they need to take advantage of some of those other aspects and then any place that we could, we tried to provide width outside of kind of where we thought the better player would hit it. Um, you know, width was is a bit of a challenge out here, um, getting some of that back. But that was certainly in our head. And I think part of what we did on the second half of the first hole, which hits over Allen's Creek, was to widen the approach and provide more room that if you're in trouble or you're a shorter player, just to carry the creek, you have more room yeah. to navigate. Something the pros might not see, but for the everybody, you know, member of the club, it's an opportunity. A thousand percent. And then at the green, I guess the this was a bunkerless green or had one bunker on the right side and mounds down the left. Sorry, trying to recall here. Um, on the Ross drawings, and there was a large tree that was overhanging the, the left-hand side of the green. That tree was removed. And we reinstalled the mounds, a broken set of mounds, uh, kind of hummock field on the front left corner. And that created some really cool dynamics with allowing the green to kind of tuck in behind that and create some variety um, if you miss the target. And then also how much you're flag hunting. It it impacts the way a ball might bounce on the the front edge of the green. Um, And then last year, we added some short grass around the left-hand side just to try to add some more of a shot variety around the putting surface. Oh, very cool. So a little history on the first hole. In 1963, member Burt King dubbed the hole the challenge. And Hogan once claimed it was the hardest opening hole in all of golf. How hard was it, you might ask? Hogan carded a six on this hole in at least three occasions. And in the 1956 US Open, he carded a five, which is at least one stroke he needed to tie Kerry Middlecoff to win his fifth US Open. 
Hole number two, Ross had it at 356 yards. Robert Trent Jones, 401. And I believe we're right around 401 today. Is that fair, Andrew? Yes. We, yeah. we squeezed every ounce we could out of I it. Love we, actually, it. we looked in the neighbor's yard for potential <laughs> See if there was did. something to get. Yeah. So in 1955, uh, Robert Trent Jones lengthened the hole by 44 yards. And that same year, he eliminated four Ross bunkers. And the fairway width, again, was cut in half. Andrew, how did you go about restoring this hole? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a, an example of where we placed a forward tee to help the uh, shorter player enjoy their experience at the East Course uh, with, with the uphill topography. That was important. Uh, we did that a number of places. I just want to make sure I don't forget to, to talk about that. And then it was really, this is where, you know, bunkering and the changes in the bunkering and how we kind of formulated placement were really dependent on the modern landing zone, getting the golf hole to, to feel like it still had a nice turn left to right. There's some majestic oak trees on this hole. Uh, we haven't talked right. about those yet. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I mean, keeping them oak in place. Hill, right? <laughs> right. Keeping them in place where certainly they were an important part of the overall design of the golf hole. We eliminated a few to showcase the best ones, but that was important. And then we placed a bunker in a, an interesting position where Ross originally had a bunker roughly, let's see, it was roughly in the 300, 350 range at the bottom of a slope. And of course, that was in between golf shots when the golf course was first built, but it works quite well today. So and it works. Now, yeah, that's great. So we were able to restore the left-hand bunker there. And uh, so that'll, that'll challenge. That's a new hazard uh, for the player. And then up at the green, really trying to get the green shape back. This one, I recall quite a bit of discussion with the membership that sand buildup on the right and left side of the putting surface had really caused the green to kind of create a valley. And all the hole locations were right up the center because there was counter slope on either side. And so we really attacked that sand buildup and widened out the putting surface and the usable space so that now hole locations could go up and down the right and left sides of the golf hole. And then uh, there was a lot of discussion about rear bunker placement in the restoration effort. And in this instance, we uh, traded sand for a uh, fairway area that rolls off the back. And that'll create some interesting dynamics as far as in that position, you'll have to make a decision of what kind of shot do you play coming back down the green if you're long yeah. uh, and then a really cool green shape it, it's got kind of a, a an interesting appendage right and left in the back so we really we really worked to restore those well history of this hole in 1956 u.s open champion Kerry middlecoff his tee shot buried in the right fairway bunker in a horrible situation middlecoff hit one of the best shots of the tournament blasting it out to four feet of the pin this hole is called the breather However, what I found really interesting about this is it wasn't because it was considered easy. It was only considered to be easier than the first hole. <laughs> That's <laughs> hey, that the only the reason it's called the breather. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, it's uh, it still gets your attention. It might be a breather, but uh, yeah. Hilarious. So hole number three, Ross, 186 yards. Robert Trent Jones, 211. And today, are we right around 236, Andrew? Yeah, we went back there quite a bit. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
So it changed before Green uh, saw the restoration. In 1954, RTJ added 25 yards. He added a bunker behind the green. Uh, the split bunkers fronting the green and then shifted the other bunkers. How did you go about approaching this hole? Yeah, this was one of a handful of holes where we felt the green had drastically shrunk from its original um, kind of vision. And so we eliminated the back bunker and took the green back into that space. And it allows for a back left hole location that's kind of almost in a semi punch punch bowl kind of feel. Uh, there's rough grass and a little bit of flip of collar in that area. And so that whole location starts to be pretty demanding. There's a bit of a rise to get into it, but it created more variety. Before we started, it was really just get the ball in the center of the green. There, there wasn't a lot of intention to try to get right side, left side, or even front or back. So now providing extra depth, uh, I don't have the exact distance in front of me, but I bet it's, you know, six paces plus of extra depth to the green, maybe, maybe closer to 10. Uh, it brought this amazing, the, the green sits on a really cool high point, but it brings this amazing kind of drop off in the back into play because if you're aiming for the center of the green, right, your plus minus is, is what it is. But when the green has an appendage that extends even further back and you're trying to get back to that whole location now going long, over the center or right side of the green now comes more into play, if that makes sense. I know it's hard to yeah, it does. You know, talk about it, not visualize it. Uh, the other interesting thing is the original fourth tee was left of this green, a very short walk. And we tried to leave an ability to utilize that, especially for member play. Um, but it was kind of integrated into the way the green sits. Oh, that's so cool. So this green was technically shaped 25,000 years ago by glaciers. That's part of my history here. Uh, the hole has been regarded as one of the most difficult in upstate New York. And in the 1980 PGA Championship, this hole was the fourth most difficult. Let's move to number four. Hole number four started at 505 yards, moved to 570 yards. And if I'm right, it's currently right around 628 yards. Does that sound correct? Yes, sir. I'm going after your proposal, so I have to make sure that yeah, what was proposed exactly and what was built. Yeah, I've got 615 in front of me. Okay, that could be right. Yeah, that's, I'm sure yours is right. I'm guessing on mine. No, it's, it's all good. Okay. In 1954, RTJ added 65 yards to the hole. He eliminated most of Ross's original greens, including two bunkers 100 yards off the tee. The hole used to play straight and was made into an early dogleg right. Now, walk us through. Like, how did... How do you tackle this hole? How, what'd you do here? Yeah. Um, so that's where I said the original tee was left of the third green and you kind of walk off the putting surface and up maybe a 15 foot slope and you'd be on the next tee with RTJ's work of getting the dog leg, the, the player, if we were playing, we just kind of come off the green and go to our right off three green, go to our right. And we land on the tee to play the golf hole and the dog leg right is, um, it's a valuable golf shot for sure. It gets, it gets you really thinking about picking a line and a distance off the tee. So there was value to that dog leg. And then we actually had property behind that tee that we went and, and took advantage of. The issue really was that the landform limited sight lines. And so we tried to find a balance of not making it a, a blind shot 
but it's not the most necessarily the most comfortable view, I guess right. is the way I would describe it. But that could it. be a good thing, right? In my mind, yes. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're, you know, in contention for a major championship on the final day and you get them just to say, man, what, what are we going to do on that hole? Right. Just make them a little uncomfortable. A little uncomfortable. Yeah. So, uh, we went back and the cool thing when you take, when you do a greens project, you're doing a lot of work, you generate a lot of fill material from that process. This was a great opportunity to take the dirt from number 12, number two, number three, number one. All that dirt went and created the landform that the new back tee on four rests on. So there's some nice synergy to that. Um, and then it was really about the, the first dog leg and challenging the player. There's three bunkers down the right-hand side that were repositioned. And there's some grading right of those bunkers to make a player who tries to cheat uh, right of them. To, to still have something to think about. Uh, the bunkers progress in difficulty. The first bunkers a little shallower than the next, and the third bunker is the most difficult of all three. The idea being the longest player from every tee would be challenged by that long bunker trying to take advantage of power. And then the second half of the golf hole gets almost a little bit of a double dog leg. It kind of oozes back to the left side. We place two new bunkers in the approach, offsetting them to make a layup thoughtful there's a zone to lay back and with a full wedge or you try to get into a position of attacking uh, the, the whole location the green is spectacular it's one of my favorites in golf uh, it has it's a inverted triangle so the point kind of comes to the player of that triangle and um, the front's kind of lopped off a little squarish but it's kind of that shape and the two corners in the back jut way out. And so the flag could go really out into these corners. And because of that, the guarding bunkers then generate, you want to be one side or the other to attack those. So really, really cool. And then there's a really great little kind of plateau in the center of the back that I, I just love. And it was intended, you know, Ross had it drawn in perfectly. And so it makes, you know, all these different hole locations more interesting with just one major feature. And then we draped some short grass off the back of the green last year to make it a little more exacting. I think that'll be a place where balls may end up in the short grass and the short grass may also move them further from the green. Sure. So we'll see how that one plays. That's pretty cool. So is, is there a favorite pin position you have on this hole? I mean, I love the, you know, it's 600 and almost 620, 630 yards. These bombers today. I mean, that's who knows what that is. The driver and a, Seven iron. I don't even know what they hit their, with their Herculean sure. strength. So is there a, is there a pin? I know you don't have control of where they're going to put it, but if you could place one out there, where would you put it? Just to make it very interesting. Yeah, I think anything back center is actually very intriguing because if you're right, it wants to move right and you'll have a demanding two putt. If, it, if you're short, you'll have to come up and over a rise and not go long. Uh, it, it's just a very interesting location. That's I think cool. Yeah. yeah. Dead center in the back. So a little history. The main entrance to Oak Hill Country Club used to run through this hole off the tee. During World War II, members were faced to take a bus to the club due to gasoline rations. The club for a couple of those years employed a horse and buggy to shuttle members to and from the entrance to catch a bus. Also, prior to becoming a golf club, this land was a farm. And way back when the original farmhouse used to sit on the left side of the fairway, unfortunately, it was demolished 
around 1980. So a little bit of history of the farm coming into play and how <laughs> you don't see that. I mean, we have a new entrance, so we're not going to see members coming to and fro and cutting across the T-Bucks when uh, Jordan Speed's teeing off. That's right. But that, yeah, the farmhouse was the longtime maintenance facility. Yeah. And so that, cool. yeah, that was, yeah. So uh, hole five, Ross, 371 yards, RTJ 406. And then here's where it gets weird, folks. We go to 165 yards. So at one time, the, whole, the fifth hole, there were two fifth holes. There was an alternate hole that was during the renovation. This par three for a time was used in an alternate hole. In other words, you had two options to play it during this renovation project. How this whole change is really fascinating to me, Andrew. Um, there's an interesting story. It was originally, you know, Ross, it was the sixth hole was the current fifth, or I guess the, it's very confusing to walk this through. Yeah. <laughs> it, the original yeah, but, fifth Ross is the sixth now. Correct? That's correct. And the USGA had some concerns for the 1968 U.S. Open when it came to congestion between the 6th, 7th, and ninth greens. So over that time, while they were doing a renovation, the 6th hole disappeared, and we had an alternate 5th hole for a period of time. So, I mean, walk me through that hot mess. I mean, I'm yeah. just going through it in my head is very difficult as we, as we talk about it. This is the most cumbersome thing to discuss about yeah, the project. Right. It's, me, it's the uh, newest hole on the course. We could say that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's walk the, the, the folks listening. Let's kind of walk through what Ross had intended originally. His intention was to walk off the par five fourth hole, walk to the golfer's left and tee off on a very demanding par four that was bisected by Allen's Creek. And that par four which was the fifth hole for Ross was regarded as one of the best par fours in the country at some time. Everything you read about it, it was just a very lauded golf hole. It demanded two very good golf shots to be successful. Ross then played a par three sixth hole that was wedged between what is 12, nine, seven, you know, in a very narrow space. When the golf course started to host majors, that sixth hole was just so congested, so tight in that space that they had to do something to relieve the traffic. The first fix or what they tried to do first was to eliminate that par three and put a par three between number four and number five. That hole lasted basically a handful of years. And I believe it was Trevino's open he played that golf hole, and then immediately after, it went away. When I arrived to Oak Hill, you walked off the par five fourth hole to the left, and you played a short four fifth, and then a par three sixth that were put in place by the Fazios, George and Tom. That Those two holes fit on what was the original Ross fifth hole. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's it's yeah, right. it's hard to just talk about, isn't it? I, I fumbled my way through it, so you're fine. Yeah, sorry. So <laughs> I'm so sorry for those listening. But the real intention here was everything possible in the world. What could we do to replace the or find the original Ross fifth par four, number five par four? It was so lauded. That hole was a primary focus of the entire work. 
how do we find that golf hole again? For me, how to do that was to put a par three back between four and five. But I replicated the original raw soul that was lost before. <laughs> yeah. So we lose uh, if it's five or six. <laughs> it depends on right. when we look at it in history, right? That's right. Uh, let's call it the sixth hole, uh, which was yeah. this par three that just got in the way. I think and maybe Correct. is maintenance near there, too? Is the maintenance area somewhere it- in that vicinity? There's an access. There's a lot of things happening. Yeah. Yes. So the, it became basically unplayable. And it's is it fair to say that you just said, listen, you know, this hole can't exist here. However, we can take it from this location and take the aspects of that design and put it in the location where Fazio built the alternative hole. Is that fair? It's fair, other than the alternative hole actually is attributed to either RTJ and there's some reference potentially to Davis Love the second. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't Not know that. Davis yeah. Love the third, but the second. Um, so, anyways, we're going to confuse people. But yes, my intention was is that when the decision was made to remove the original Ross par three, Ross's sixth hole, that had they had the understanding to replicate that in a new space, there would have never been a reason to touch this amazing par four fifth hole. So, you know, what we did was we took the space behind the fourth, the par five fourth. There was roughly 170, 180 yards to build a golf hole there. There was a ton of trees that were removed to make it possible. And then I recreated Ross's par three in that space. And then that allowed me to use the exact corridor that Ross had used for the par four and replicate or reinstitute that golf hole. So the, the reality is if you fast forward through everything that we just talked about, you walk off the par five fourth golfers, right? A little bit, you'll play a par three, very demanding, heavily guarded fortified green. And then they'll play this amazing par four that I imagine will be part of the talk of the event. Um, it's a very demanding golf hole, probably the hardest on the property. Love it. So little history. I know I'm not going to confuse it anymore. It's the youngest, <laughs> youngest golf hole on the property. And one might say that at one time, at least Oak Hill country club had the best 19 hole golf course in the world as it played as an alternate. So I guess, you know, it's possible back in the day, you could have said, I'll meet you at the 19th hole. And some people went to the bar and some people went to the fifth. I mean, who knows? There you go. <laughs> uh, so hole number six. Now that we're, it's old five. That's the last time I'm going to bring up an alternate yes. number, but it's the old five, hole six, Ross 371, RTJ 406, uh, Andrew Green 515 yards. And holy cow, I have to explain this again, but the holes changed a lot from RTJ's perspective. If you go back in history, again, we just kind of went through the history. But in 1954, RTJ added a new tee box. In 1976, uh, George and Tom Fazio eliminated Ross's green and built a green closer to Allen's Creek. They also built a pond and a contoured bank at the edge of the new green. And a new tee box was added with length. And I'm going to say before you jump in here, you know, I've reviewed what you've done and I've looked at what's happened over the years. And Andrew, I got to say, I mean, I think this is one of the gutsiest moves you made in this restoration uh, because I'm sure it had to be hard to go back to the Ross because Fazio's moved that 
the green on Allen's Creek or right off of Allen's Creek. So I got two parts. One, uh, congrats. That's awesome that you restored it to kind of its original location. But did you receive any pushback? Because I can imagine members have to say, well, wait a second. It's a harder hole if it's on the creek. You know, why would we push it back to its original location? Interesting. Um, yeah, I, again, I think it was really a hallmark of our effort was to get this golf hole back. Uh, again, when you read back through the history of the golf course before anything was tinkered with, the original golf hole on this piece of ground was spectacular. It had angles, it had integrity, it had options. And so restoring that was first and foremost. And the reality is it's a much harder golf hole than the previous version, than, than the most the version before our work. Uh, it is, it, it makes you hit a great tee shot to then be in position to hit a great longer club to a green that certainly accepts the ball to bounce in, but it has to be a bit exacting. And then Ross had this really interesting green where you study his drawings. He had kind of an elevated back right corner that's quite difficult to get to. In fact, I think if the hole goes in that back corner in a few weeks, they'll probably push the tees forward because it's so tough to get to, especially with a longer club. So that'll be interesting. But uh, it is it will have the golfers full attention because a, a great drive, there's, there's so much trouble left and right off the tee, and you really have to be in a good position to be successful. Did you have to push any of the members when moving it off the creek, or were they, they were all on board? The, the changes here on, on the last two holes we've discussed actually were pretty universally accepted. There was a little hesitation that, that the par three was going on a piece of ground that was a bit lifeless. And so we had to explain how good we could make it. Uh, the reality was the inspiration for that golf hole. It didn't matter where the golf hole set in the world. It would have been good. What Ross drew was really exciting. Well, that's great news. I, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of it from my experiences with golf clubs, and I could see specifically in a major championship that they might have the idea that it's a harder hole because it's on the water when, in fact, you know, Ross did all the appropriate work to give it its own teeth, let it stand on its own. So that's great. I'm glad I'm glad you didn't get any pushback there. But either way, I, I look at it from what it was to what it is. I'm like, boy, that's a really gutsy move because, yeah, it should go there. That's where it was meant to go. But moving something off water and, and getting the idea through some members' heads of it's harder on the water. Well, you know, they might be thinking of their own games over the pro game, too. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. A little history. In 1963, John Schubert, member at Oak Hill, named this hole Double Trouble for its dogleg and creek. In the 1980 PGA Championship, Double Trouble lived up to its name as the hardest hole on the course. Let's jump into hole number seven. So we have uh, 422 yards by Ross, 431 by RTJ, and I have 479 by Andrew Green. Sound correct? Yes. Most times I'm going to miss it by a mile and it'll be embarrassing. No, you're good. Uh, in 1955, RTJ eliminated four original Ross bunkers. The fairway, as we've talked about, has been cut in half. Uh, Ross's original fairway was cut all the way down to the creek, and the green was rounded over the years, losing Ross's original shape. How did you attack this hole? Yeah, this was interesting for a couple reasons. One, the, the hole that was played previously, 
um, meaning the, the, the sixth hole, there were some players leading into our renovation and restoration effort that were playing down this golf hole to attack the previous green. Oh, wow. Interesting. And so the way we've, we've addressed that issue for the most part, I don't think we'll see that in, in a couple of weeks, but it became this interesting dialogue of improving the sight lines to the fairway on seven, the whole we're discussing. And if we improve the sight lines by lowering the foreground, would it make it even more advantageous for players on the sixth hole to use the seven fairway to play an alternate route on that golf hole? So there was a lot of anxiety about how can we make this golf hole better and not have a unintended consequence. So we ended up lowering the foreground. We felt like we took care of the sixth hole problem by angling the green the way we did. So we lowered the foreground and gave the golfer a bit more of a view to Allen's Creek in Ross's time. Even though he had some notes about trying to lower to see a little bit more, this golf hole, the, the creek, a lot of the creek was blind. And, you know, obviously as players, we know that there's some pros and cons to that. But for the most part, most players would say it's, it's definitely unsettling and maybe a bit, I don't know if unfair is the right word, but they'd it's use nice unfair. They'd use unfair. You don't have to use it, but they would. <laughs> So what we did is kind of a combo. We lowered the foreground so you could see a bit more. And then we took the fairway back to Allen's Creek where there's a little more width, but there's a tighter margin of error. There's not as much room to have something hold up in the rough down the right side. So that was huge. Uh, there's some really large overhanging trees on both sides. We thinned them back, but there's, there's still some uh, vertical challenge there and then restored the green and the approach. Uh, the green became very rounded, as you said. We got the squareness back to it, kind of these, these squarish corners. And it's kind of a prototypical back-to-front green that has a, a bit of subtlety to it and a, a bit of a ridge in the back, but a really good golf hole. That's very cool. So if you're ever going to play Oak Hill, this is the chance you have to see a ghost. The ghost of Wild Bill Hickok has been said to, to wander the grounds here near this hole. Back in the 1870s, Wild Bill used to shoot and hunt on these grounds. It's been said that this was one of his favorite hunting grounds. Now players in the 2023 PGA Championship will be hunting for themselves, but hunting for birdies. Hole number eight. I know that was corny. <laughs> A little bit, but that's okay. Hole number eight. I didn't eight. see him out there. <laughs> You didn't see him the whole time? I, well, I thank not. goodness for that. Hole number eight, Ross's time, 446 yards. This is where it gets confusing for me. RTJ 430, so it's a decrease, and I have you at 444. Does that sound correct? Yeah. The green has not shifted. The tees, we, we got a little bit of distance to, but I believe the biggest difference, there, this is along the entry drive, and I believe there was an adjustment to that drive that caused the change in yardage. In 1955, RTJ eliminated the centerline bunker 160 yards off the green and he buried the old creek bread fronting it. RTJ then reshaped the greenside bunkers and added a pot bunker fronting the green. The hole actually decreased from 446 to 430, you're right, when the club moved the entrance to the club on Chaplin Way. How did you go about restoring this? Yeah, I think I've said before that if you were to kind of try to picture a prototypical Donald Ross golf hole in your head, 
the, the eighth hole would be a, a similar image. And let me unpack that for you. It means that there are a number of hazards that you have to think about down the golf hole and they're placed in a manner that there seems like there's less room between trouble between each element than there really is. So the layers in the landscape are outstanding. Um, we have hummocks first on the right, and then there's a bunker left, and then there's a bunker right, and then there's another bunker left on down the golf hole. So when you start to see those things stair-stepped in the landscape, it, it makes driving the golf ball feel you know, like you don't have as much room as really is out there, is truly out there. We really talked long and hard about making the bunkers go from kind of flanking the fairway on right or left to intercepting the line of play, meaning that they, they tug into the fairway a little bit on both sides. And I think this will be interesting to see where ball placement is and what club is hit off the tee. Might depend on wind direction uh, in a couple weeks. And then the green itself, we actually narrowed the target on this one. We took a good chunk of the green off on the left-hand side and tried to make this green a bit more demanding in its overall presence, still respecting the Donald Gross shape and the dynamics of that, uh, the contours and concepts, but just to narrow the target, uh, you know, at 430, 460, <laughs> a lot of players are going to have a shorter club in, which is crazy, right? But really unique green, you know, when you look at the golf course from the air, this green stands out as a very unique shape. So a little history going back 43 years. In the 1980 PGA Championship, there were three times more bogeys than there were birdies on the eighth hole. Hole number nine, Ross, 403 yards, RTJ, 419, and Andrew Greek comes in at 491 yards. In 1955, RTJ elongated the ninth hole by 16 yards and eliminated three of Ross's original bunkers. The fairway was decreased by 40%, and RTJ reshaped the Ross green. Talk a little bit about the ninth hole as we make the corner. Yeah. So a, a pretty cool element here was the ability to create a new back tee that got us that extra yardage, but it also acts as a forward tee for the seventh golf hole. So instead of spending money to build something that's used every few years, whatever, for one week, it actually is utilized by the forward tee players on seven on a daily basis. So there were a couple of places where we worked to do that. Actually, the forward tee on nine will or potentially play as a back tee on 12 uh, in the tournament. So there are a couple of places where there's some synergy of, of tee placement. This golf hole is the most defined by the topography on which it sits as any golf hole at Oak Hill. It has an amazing kind of crest to the first half of the fairway that works the golf ball to the player's left. And then there's a bit of a depression that golf balls feed down into, and it kind of wants to work a little bit both directions. And then the second half of the landing zone is, is going uphill and to the right. So golf balls still want to work left. So it's kind of this weird roller coaster ride of a golf ball traveling through the space. And it ends up getting the golf ball in positions where the ball's above the player's feet as a right-handed player or in a bit of an awkward stance to then attack a, a golf shot that's fairly well uphill can at, at times be semi-blind because of the topography to a really interesting green that's actually a triangle inverted from what I said earlier on four where it's very wide in the front and narrow as it gets to the back. And uh, one of the big things we did was to get the front left corner of that green reinstalled 
it had been lost to time. That was a huge restoration effort on this golf hole. And I can't wait to see the whole location there. That'd be fun. So the history, this hole is called Needle's Eye. It has been known in the past for its collection of trees. On the left side of this hole sits Oak Hill's oldest oak tree dating back to the mid-1800s. And on the other side, a grouping of American beech trees dating back to the early 1700s. This concludes our podcast on the restoration of Oak Hill, the front nine. In the upcoming weeks, we will release part two, the restoration of Oak Hill, the back nine. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Lewis.